I'm I'm going to paraphrase Churchill here. Uh, generally accounting, uh, generally accepted accounting practices is is the worst type of accounting in the world, except for all the others. Right, and it is because it's a consensus of people whose job is to pay taxes for people, and they uh, generally have a pretty good ethics rating to look at it and say that's really profit or that's really not profit. Uh, and unfortunately, there's not an easy way of approaching this. Unless we just do a sales tax on everybody. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, where we will say such exciting things as when depreciation has changed over the years, the tax implications might have to be measured alongside the earnings repercussions and other exciting things. If that terrifies you. Uh, then please do not operate heavy equipment while listening. And you're welcome to join with us, presuming that it is the 3rd of June and sometime between 11 o'clock and noon where you are, uh, where we are. Uh, then you can send us an email at either, I've actually send it to both Jeff at tpwc.com and Jake at tpwc.com. All right. Uh, we have another question from Inquisitor John. And Inquisitor John has a picture of the Wall Street Journal in this question as well. And the question or the headline is, Companies find crafty ways to engineer larger profits. And his circled portion of the article says, Another measure used to predict the likelihood of earnings flattery is the Benish M score, named for its creator, Indiana University accounting professor Masad Benish. Recently, academics found that the aggregate score of a sample of nearly 2,000 companies was its highest level in more than 40 years, the most recent data shows. Okay. Historically, the aggregate score peaks ahead of a downturn. Okay. Or during a downturn. That's the thing that most people aren't aware of. Okay. What does that even mean? What is a Benish M score? How is this? His question is, by the way, is this a legal way to help cook the books? What does it mean? Because we have 77% of the companies of the S&P 500 exceeded their earnings expectations this last quarter. As of uh, the last of May, the companies that had accounted so far, 77% of them had more earnings than they expected. And some of what's going on here is this, the, the, the uh Benicia's M score. What is a Benicia's M score? Well, they're measuring what's being depreciated. They're measuring the gross margin. They're looking at sales growth and and asset quality and all kinds of pieces that fit into the M score. What does that mean? What are they looking at? Well, in the United States, we have generally accepted accounting practices, and that's what is used when audits are done to say what earnings are and so on. But there's still some flexibility there. If you, I'll give you a really simple one, easiest way of looking at it. When doing your taxes as a business, there's two ways to do it. You can do it as accrual, which means you just signed a contract and you're about to be paid in 90 days, $3 million. Well, if it's 90 days and you're taking it as a cash income, 
and say you're in October. Well, if, you, if you're reporting your taxes on the money that actually has arrived in your bank account, you don't, owe any taxes. you don't owe any taxes yet, but you also didn't get that earning. So you can't report that our earnings are way up because we did this contract because you don't get the money for 90 days. That's next year's earnings, okay? Well, if you switch from cash to accrual, suddenly you got earnings this year. Did it actually change what really happened? No, just how it's accounted for. When the taxes are due becomes this year instead of next year. So there are things that you can do in taxes and in auditing to change when the earnings are derived. When do they occur? If you have a piece of equipment, call it a big tractor, and you say, I think this thing is going to only last me five years the way this thing is going. And your accountant firm looks at it and says, all right, this specific type of tractor has a little loophole in the law that says that we can depreciate it over a five-year period instead of over a 10-year period. Oh, well, then let's use that. Let's say let's depreciate it over a five-year period because then we get the tax revenue or that we don't have to pay taxes. It's a loss. But then the economy starts to turn down. There's less demand for whatever it is that that big tractor thing was doing. And so you say, hey, we're not using it as much as we thought we were. We're going to depreciate it over 10 years. What does that mean? It means we expect it to be useless and worthless in 10 years rather than in five years. Well, that suddenly is less of a loss on your books. Even though it's the same equipment and it doesn't and it isn't actually profit or loss based on how soon it decays, we call it a loss because the value of the thing has gone down. Um, if you're depreciating it over 10 years, you have less loss and therefore more earnings if they're positive. So there's a lot of things that can be done in accounting to change what you're earnings are. But on top of that, we've had a lot of layoffs in the biggest part of the S&P 500. The, the top five companies in there now, now represent 25% of the value of the S&P 500. So when those five companies lay people off and their earnings increase because they're not paying it out on the salary, their margin went up, then it looks like we've got a lot more earnings coming in than we did when the reality, and it's true. They, are, they may be making exactly the same amount of money, but they're spending less of it on overhead, uh, or in this case, people sitting in chairs uh, That's or standing at stand-up desks. I don't want to trigger anyone and say, I don't sit in chairs. It's a very sensitive political time between stand-up desks and sit-down desks. It's very scary stuff. These woke stand-uppers are... Uh, obviously, I'm being facetious here. Okay. Did you want to handle any more of this, or have I kicked the accounting horse enough times? Well... Suffice to say that I spent several years being the sole accountant for our business, and I reached some conclusions as I was doing that. And you, whoever you are out there, presuming that you have the ability to invest and realize gains on your investments and so on at various times, may be doing the same thing that the corporation's doing. If you consciously do something, you'll say you're going to be in receipt of profits or something, and you know you have a high income year this year, any accountant will tell you if you can defer the receipt of profits, gains, into the next year when you may be at a lower tax rate, they ask you to do that. And what the complaint is in that article is something that is done by literally everybody within the limits of the law. If the law gets too tight on taxes, it becomes extremely awkward and difficult to do business. On the other hand, if the tax law, as it does, gives us, gives business owners a certain 
room to maneuver as to when they realize gains or when they realize losses. That is advantageous to the businesses, which tends to make them more profitable, which means in the long term, they wind up paying more debt. They are not debt. They wind up paying more taxes. I, I don't really think anybody is cooking the books. Uh, the fact that uh, people are deferring depreciation a little bit, you still, if you depreciate, if you further, if you send depreciation out further, it increases your taxes, but still it results in in lower earnings in the future years yeah. than in this year if you stretch it out. It, 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 it really balances out to be equality. I think that's yeah. article is of much ado about nothing. Right. What What I would say about this is they only have a limited time period where they can do this. If you're looking at depreciation, if you look at it, if, just imagine that you have a, a an account that's holding losses in it. And you can use those losses between now and 10 years from now. And the way you have scheduled to do it is equal amounts over a 10-year period. Well, if you use it all up in the first five years, you don't have it for the next five. So it's not like they're coming up with losses that didn't exist. If they are, that's fraud. And this is why we have third-party auditors come in to publicly traded companies to look at this and say, really? The SEC also announced clearly that if the books look funny to them, there will be fines. Uh, and they said that recently. And they say that basically every time you have a major bear market, this sort of thing starts to occur because people are looking, oh, we've got losses this year, or we, we've got, uh, if, if we spread the losses out longer or sh- uh, contract them, we can make our earnings look better. But it's a very temporary boost because you're still, you're, it's, you're taking the same money, you're just doing it over a different period of time. And I, I know that it's, it's complicated. It shouldn't be. It, it, there would, in the perfect world, we should say this is exactly what profitability really is. Except that we can't do that. Why not? Because we have a bunch of arbitrary dates. Let me kind of make this as clear as possible. You can't really have an accurate picture of what's going on in the world. If you are a business and you say we've been saving up for eleven months to buy a nice piece of equipment, we started saving up in February. We've been saving $100,000 a year, but we need $1.2 million to buy the thing. So by the end of the year, you got $1.1 million sitting there that you're about to spend next month. When you get the $1.2 million, you're going to spend it next month. But because it's the end of the year, uh, January 1st comes around, your accounting team puts together a profit and loss report. And you got $1.1 million of extra profit. Where did that come from? Well, it's savings that you're about to spend, but now you owe taxes on it because it's profit. But it's not really profit. It's savings that you're about to spend, and then you'd be able to depreciate it. You can see the problem here. Now, next year, you can come back and try to claw back the extra taxes you paid by saying, look, we bought this other thing. And because of that, last year's profits were less than they looked like. This is silliness. In a perfect world, it would just be known this is savings for an investment. But then we'd have to believe the people doing the counting that that's not really profit, that it's going to be used for something else. And if they didn't use it for something else, then the taxes would be due in arrears. How do we do this? This is weird. There's a lot of complication to the tax code that there's no software for. There's no easy tool to use. So you still have people with spreadsheets looking at it and going, my opinion is that this isn't profit, this is depreciation. 
when no actual money was spent on depreciation. If your tractor is now worth less money than it was, have you realized that loss? No, you won't until it stops working completely. So there's a lot of complexity here that in a perfect world we wouldn't have, but we don't have a perfect world. We don't trust the government to know every dollar that's coming into our books and every dollar that's going out and all of our plans for all of that stuff. So we have an imperfect system, and that's probably good that we do. But it leads to fraud in some cases. So you said, I'm certain that there's no cooking of the books occurring. I'm not. There's probably people out there doing it. We, every year we have fraud cases that come up for publicly traded companies. But I think the vast, vast majority of auditing is being done properly. It was not in the year 2000 or so. The Enron Arthur Anderson scandal was a big deal because the third-party auditors were colluding with the companies to lie about what their earnings were, and that's horrible. Let me let me point something out here. What the accountants were doing at Enron, for example, was following the letter of the tax code. Right, uh, and they were. It was precisely what was written into the tax code. I think it was 1990 Act, and we changed uh, it afterwards to, to yeah. close up that gap get it so they said there with the gap it's, it's an accounting not, joke it's so funny they weren't lying and by the way that came out in court because arthur anderson was sued it wasn't fraud wrote. right arthur anderson fraud. they were simply following the tax code as it was written in a to show enron with positive earnings when in fact their earnings were negative now, it may sound like that they weren't punished for wrongdoing there because they won the lawsuit. However, Arthur Anderson still ceased to exist. And the executives at Enron who had publicly stated that they were profitable, that's they went to jail. Get the tax code for a minute. They knew that the company was losing money, even though they were doing a clever job of hiding it on their books, and yet stated publicly that they were making a big profit. Now, that that was a lie. Yeah, that was breach of fiduciary responsibility directly lying to the people that they're supposed to be working in the best interest for of. And they went to jail. So that's really that's that was effective on but it still meant that all the investors in Enron lost their money. The fraud that they lost money and there wasn't any way to recoup those losses to the investors. Let me let me give an example of this type of cooking the books which really isn't cooking the books. It's legal. The deal that just went through the House and the Senate to raise the debt ceiling. Yeah, that was cooking the books, that's for sure. No, no, just just listen for go, a second. Go ahead. Speaker McCarthy said that we have fully funded defense. No, defense, the defense budget they agreed in this agreement will rise by 3%. What has inflation been over the last year? Five plus. 4.5 plus. So it is a cut to defense. And the following year, they're again going to cut defense spending. That's an example of how uh, both sides, the, the president and the speaker, can say we fully funded defense when in fact they cut the value of funds going to the defense department. Now, let me explain something why that's dangerous at this point. The biggest expense that the defense department has is military pay and allowances. And the military pay and allowances rise with inflation. And those people who are retired military also that's Defense Department until they hit age 65, I think it is. It's in the Defense Department. They've got to, they just got through raising the expenditures for pay 
for maintaining the people by 7%, but they only got a 3% raise, which means there's less money to do things like maintain aircraft carriers, uh, provide for flight time for fighter pilots and so on. Now, now wow. we're, not, we're not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing. It might be a bad thing. We're not oh, saying wow. good or bad. What we're saying is that it is not honest to say we're not cutting the military. I personally think it's a bad thing. And, and the reason I say that is there's a wide... See, spread. I'm not going to put my personal opinion in there because okay, well, I I'm, think when we're just looking at the numbers, to make it as clear as possible, Congress said we're not cutting... Or the Republicans said we're not cutting defense, and yet we are in the real sense of the term. That is a real cut in defense spending. Well, the only reason I'm bringing this up is there is a consensus among the intelligence agencies, including military intelligence agencies in the United States, that China is preparing to fight the United States. Yeah. This this doesn't make a great deal of sense to me to cut defense spending in the face of some the second largest military force in the world, which is China's, gearing up with the expectation that they will go to war with us in a few years. So when we cut spending, that means we cut maintenance on our equipment, on our on our ships, uh, training time. I was in the army when Jimmy Carter was cutting defense, and it became a hollow army. We were incapable of going and fighting a war. Uh, and I, I guess I'm kind of sensitive to that, particularly when we ultimately had to go fight a war and were totally unprepared for it. Yeah, the, the Chinese Navy has more ships than the United States Navy at this point, which sounds terrifying. They're also building about three times as many ships as we are year by year. The types of ships they're building are the smaller ships, but their Navy has, be, has now outnumbers our Navy, and that's scary. They're spending less on it, but they're making them faster. They have better access to steel than we do right now because of all the things that we've talked about, steel subsidies and so on. Their expanding economy needed a lot of steel. They have a lot of steel refineries and a lot of steel um, uh designing companies they have an excess amount of steel they also have an excess amount of manufacturing they're making more ships they still only have two aircraft carriers their third one is in testing right now and their aircraft carriers are nowhere near as good as ours but that doesn't mean that they're not catching us as far as speed of production that's scary um the russians are obviously scary though they seem to be uh, limiting themselves <laughs> <laughs> and their their deterioration of their military over the last year has been significant. They are not a growing military power at this point. They are a shrinking military power in, in massive ways. But it does mean that looking at defense spending in the United States, we don't want to be open to those threats. We don't want to lower our defenses at a time when there's a building um, kind of aggressive force out there that is threatening to take over allies of the United States and possibly take over sea channels that we need for our trade. That's not cool. So yeah, all of that goes back to accounting and who's right and are we cooking the books? And I wish, man, I wish that accounting was not as obtuse because it's all it based is. on opinions, but it is obtuse because the reality is how much money do you have at any given moment? If you're counting the value of your house, that's not money. If you're counting the value of the land under your house or the value of your business, it's not money, it's a business. So what value is and what money is gets in the way of clear understanding of what profits are. 
and you really don't know any small business owners that are listening to me right now, you're expected to estimate your quarterly taxes for a year that you have no idea what your business is going to be in. And you really don't know the profitability of your business. People extend their taxes until October of the following year. But even then, they don't know what the profitability of the business is. They might have to change their taxes in three years for something that they did this year. Because profitability isn't really marked at a January 1 deadline or a December 31 deadline. It's marked on what did you spend and what were your expenses over a continuum. We don't know how to do that yet. Maybe we'll never will. Ah, scary. <laughs> so in the meantime, everybody will be thoroughly confused because why not? Well, that's why it's called generally accepted accounting practices. If the CPAs get together every year and figure out how we're going to account for this stuff and the wiggle room between bad and good on it, and they do a pretty good job. Uh, and it's, it's and certainly as long it, as they follow generally accepted accounting practices, I'm I'm perfectly pleased with it. I'm I'm going to paraphrase Churchill here. Uh, generally accounting, ex- uh, uh, generally accepted accounting practices is is the worst type of accounting in the world, except for all the others. Right, and it is because it's a consensus of people whose job is to pay taxes for people, and they uh, generally have a pretty good ethics rating to look at it and say that's really profit or that's really not profit. Uh, and unfortunately, there's not an easy way of approaching this. Unless we just do a sales tax on everybody. Can I change the subject? Absolutely. Because accounting is so exciting, I think we're going to lose all our listeners when we move on to something else, though. Actually, the revenue by the federal government Wait, has we're been going rising. from accounting to accounting? Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> has been rising a year and a half now. It's it, the, the United States revenue has been rising. Why is it rising? Because we have an expanding economy. And one of the things, that, the big things that, we haven't talked a lot about is the fact that unemployment jumped to 3.7%. And that's a pretty good sized jump. But oddly enough, the survey indicated that the, the establishment survey didn't show that to be true. It basically said we hired over the last three months, the increase in with the two adjustments for the two previous month and the, and the announcement for April raised the employment active employment number in the United States to half a million. In other words, we increased our workforce, em- employed people who were being paid wages by half a million in the last three months. That's two million if you just continue that forward, obviously, for a year. Those people, on, on average, in the United States, people, non-supervisory personnel earning wages, saw their compensation go up 4.3%. This is a huge positive. And, in, and we've only seen these kinds of numbers during times in the past when the economy is accelerating, when the economy is uh, recovering, when the economy is going great guns. When we see a peak that precedes a recession, and, and the best people to tell whether recession is coming or not are corporations, companies who sell things to other people because they, they get their orders well in advance. Right. And they will t- they can see a recession coming very clearly. And admittedly, there's all kinds of statistical tea leaves that can be read as to we're going to have a recession because the yield curve is inverted or the leading economic indicators are down. Uh, But the reality is we have a rapidly expanding economy that is running near its peak capacity. That is, you won't read that anywhere. I've looked and looked and looked. Occasionally, it will come up in Moody's, but you have to pay for that. 
So the average person isn't seeing that. So we're in this peculiar position where our economy is expanding very fast. And at the same time, economists across the board are expecting a recession this year. That is weirdness at its best. Uh, but the reality is, if you want to know how the economy is doing, this is Jake and I have been doing this for at least 20 years. <laughs> Get on I-35 and drive back and forth from Austin. That's, that's all you need to do. Yeah. Because every vehicle on that road is in the process of spending money, which is what generates the GDP. They got to buy things to drive. They got to buy vehicles to drive. And when they get where they're going, they're going to spend some money. You can look at it at a deeper level by looking at how many 18-wheelers are on I-35. And and there are a lot of 18-wheelers on I-35. There are sometimes it runs right by our office and it's just a stream of 18-wheelers going by in a few cars. There is no question that our economy is booming. So why is it that the stock market isn't booming? Uh, Simply because people are afraid of a recession and a market downturn. Why are they afraid of it? Because so many people are telling them it's coming. This is the most, if we get a recession this year, it will be the most widely forecast recession that I can find in history. But what if we don't get a recession? And there's only a minority, and I haven't I'm joined in my in that my, in minority with us and Moody's Analytics, and Moody's tends to be right more often than not. We have an economy that's growing very fast, and it's probably going to continue to grow very fast. And there's lots of reasons for that, but it's it's just the reality of what's going on out there. The Federal Reserve is probably going to not raise rates at the next meeting because they've signaled that very strongly. Right. There's a really good chance they will raise rates further as we go forward. Now, let me, we talk about raising rates as if it is something that affects you directly. It does. Let me explain why. The average mortgage last week in the United States, 30-year mortgage, was at 6.91%. And if you're like me and you refinanced when interest rates are low, you're running a 2 or maybe 3% mortgage. And that is going to keep people from selling their houses, admittedly, that slows things down. But the key thing that I find that you should take away from this is that the traditional, and I'm just going to use this as a, as a straw man, the traditional 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, doesn't work. And let me explain why it doesn't work. If you look at the yield to maturity in a bond mutual fund or the bonds you can buy today, you're going to see some very, very low numbers. If interest rates continue to rise and every indicator out there unanimously says they will continue to rise over the long term, despite the bond manager's hope that the Fed will do a pivot, interest rates will come down and we'll hit. Basically, the bond managers and a lot of folks are wishing we would have a really bad recession and that would lower interest rates which would raise the value of their bonds. But uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, My opinion is we should gear up for the fact that during the 2020s, interest rates will more closely resemble the 1990s than the years between the 1990s and now. Yeah. And we can, there's a lot of historical background to that. If we look back over the last century plus and we say, where's a traditional interest rate balance? Well, it looked a lot more like the 90s than it did like what we've just experienced. What we just experienced was unusually low for a long period of time because we were coming out of the Great Recession. They didn't call it great because it was little. So having unusually low interest rates to recover from what in effect was a financial freeze where banks uh, 
destroyed themselves, Bear Stearns, uh, Lehman Brothers, and so on, um, and then come forward to today where interest rates are back up to where they were in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and I've mentioned this in the past. It sounds like we're old fogies talking about where we were when we, you know, my first house was a 7.5% mortgage and I had good credit. My second house was at 6% and I thought that I had the steal of the century because 7.5% was good when I got it. Second house I got at 6%, I thought that was fantastic. Well, now we're right back between those two numbers. And when we look at it from an economics perspective, that is not stimulatory. It means it doesn't make the money so easy that growth happens regardless of necessary. But it doesn't cramp growth either. It doesn't artificially keep growth from occurring. It means that the growth that occurs has to be thought about versus the consequence of the debt. So better ideas are used to get debt with. We look at all the layoffs that took place on the tech world recently. If we look at what happened at Meta, that used to be Facebook, now it's Meta. Well, why did it turn? Why did it change its name to Meta? Because they thought the next big thing was going to be VR. Everybody was going to put on a helmet that weighed a large amount and put it on their head for the majority of their workday, and that they would just work in the metaverse. Well, the technology's not there to make that easy yet. You have to put on a large, heavy thing that prevents you from interacting with your real world around you in order to get there. It may be the future, but the methodology to get there isn't efficient yet. It's, and a lot of money was spent on getting us there, but it's just not there yet. This is like when Kodak said, hey, we invented the digital camera, let's stop doing film. And nobody had accepted the digital camera enough for them yet. So they nearly went out of business and then switched back and went wholeheartedly back into film right as the rest of the world accepted digital. This, when, it, when you have a good idea and you're willing to bet your reputation and the debt payment on it versus when you have an idea and it doesn't cost anything to try it out anyway because debt's so cheap. Uh, and that's what Meta found is that they could get money to do this based on a whim. So they put a lot of effort into it, obviously. I don't want to make it sound like it was an ill-thought-out thing, but it was a big bet, and now they're going, whoa, we overdid that, and we don't have the technology quite to keep up with that. Let's trim down there. Right at the same time, Apple, who was in competition with them, said, oh, we better get into this meta business. We better get our VR stuff ready because that's the future. And they're about to introduce their VR headset, which might be a great success or it might not, depending on how convenient it is to use and what's available to use in it. The software may not be there yet. There's another, this is a little off the subject for you, but it parallels it. I don't know if you heard about this, but the main wireless carriers saw their stock go down last week. Did you notice that, the yep. value? Yeah. Did you see why? No, I wasn't paying attention to it. Amazon has contacted a carrier organization expressing intent or at least they're investigating providing free cellular service to prime customers right this is paralleling what spacex has been talking about doing for a while once their network is really stable for internet connection they expect to use it for cellular service at a very 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 low rate maybe just your normal internet connection with them allows you to use your cell phone to touch the the satellites it's it's definitely a, a really unusual world out there uh things do change 
And it's one of the reasons that uh, investing, we think investing in individual stocks is, is an exciting and potentially money losing operation. But being diversified across a large portion of the yeah. stock market lets you, I think, capture a lot of the good ideas and not be swamped under by the bad ones. Because sometimes bad ideas look the same as a good idea. And sometimes bad ideas are actually good ideas that just were mistimed. Luck me, has a lot to do with that. Let me throw another little odds and ends thing out there that I think is important. The Secure 2.0 Act went into effect this year. Yeah. I would venture to say that the vast majority of people have no idea what's in that. And Correct. they're maybe not taking advantage of it. If you have a tax preparer uh, or whatever, you, if you're fund trying to fund your retirement uh, and have tax-deferred positions, it's probably a very good idea to read a summary, and, and we don't obviously have time to go all the way into it, but it's changed. Uh, the age for taking RMDs has changed. Uh, required minimum distributions, it's up to 73 now, although there's a couple of exceptions. And if you're the 73, fact, you probably know that already. But if, if you're 72, you, you might not. If you miss taking an RMD because of all this confusions of when required minimum distributions come out, it's possible to avoid the penalty, which previously was 50% of what you should have taken. It drops to 25% in this new law. And under some say, if you do it within, uh, you, you basically have two years to fess up and only pay a 10% uh, penalty. And you can get a waiver if you have some reason that you didn't take it that is acceptable. You can get a waiver and pay no penalty. Uh, that is, there's just all kinds of odds and ends in there that uh, change everything. Uh, Roth contributions can be made to uh, SEPs. Now, Simple. now, having said that, the software is still not available at many of the of the uh, locations to allow the Roth money to actually go into the SCP yet. So it's supposed to be available, but because it was a change and it was a change that has a lot of complexity to it, the ability to do the thing that the law is allowing isn't universal yet. And just because you have an SCP right. doesn't mean it automatically gets a Roth Right. addition to it. You have extra stuff that has to be done. But knowing that you have the stuff to be done lets you actually do it instead of, oh, it's just automatic. We can do it. Nope. You may know, you now know that there are extra steps you need to follow. There's just a lot of things going on out there. And we, if we had four hours, we couldn't go through all the changes that were passed in that act. But if, particularly if you're deferring taxes for retirement or you're in retirement, uh, it's a good idea to come up to speed particularly if you're doing your own taxes, on what happened in Secure 2.0. Uh, there wasn't any real, I didn't see any bad news in there. I just saw a lot of uh, corrections that should have been made. Uh, for instance, under the previous law, you were required to take required minimum distributions from your Roth IRA. No, which 401k. Is absurd. The Roth 401k. The, Ro the Roth, the Roth 401K. IRA yeah, Roth, didn't yes. require it. The Roth, the Roth 401k, and that's been eliminated. Uh, There's some good stuff in there too. Like if you're in a natural disaster and it's been declared a natural disaster by uh, by a qualified federally mandated statement, you can withdraw up to $22,000 from an IRA or a 401k with zero penalty. You still have to pay right. taxes on it, but the taxes get paid over a three-year period instead of one. We were talking earlier about how well, is that profit? Is that income? How would you say that? Well, it's over a three-year period, but you got the money this year, whatever that means. <laughs> so I, I guess in essence, we're saying there's a lot going on out there. Uh, the thing, 
the, the tax code just got a lot more complex. And by yeah. the way, the IRS hasn't written the rules for secure one yet all yeah. the way. Secure two uh, makes those even more complicated and very confusing unless you're following the day-to-day chatter and then you're informed confused instead of just confused. So it's just, it's one of those things that uh, I think you should be aware of and ask ask your tax advisor about. Why am I bringing this up now? Because April 15th is now far enough behind us that the tax advisors will actually talk to you. Yes. That, um, demographically, by the way, accountants are getting rarer. Yes. Well, fewer people are choosing tax accounting majors in college by a significant number, and there are fewer people being hired to do it right as the complexity has just risen, which means that the people left doing it are spending more hours doing it, which is causing early retirement in the older demographic population of a tax accounting. So either we need a lot better software very quickly, or we need to um, pay the accountants more, which unfortunately is not cool. Which, by the way, just as a side note, that's a form of taxation that we can't track. The more complex our tax code, the more expensive it is to actually do the taxes. And if we look at the amount of money and time being spent at businesses accounting for taxes, if we look at the, the finance department of a manufacturing company, the, that department has grown over the last five years. Why? Because taxes are harder to do, which means that's an implied lower profitability because you got to pay more overhead to the people just keeping up with the numbers to do the taxes. There's problems there. So complexity of the tax code is an invisible tax hike that doesn't bring any revenue to the government. Yuck. So let's decomplexify, please. Let's simplify. If you can have disinflation, you can have decomplexity. Just, just saying. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm dissing complexity, if you know what I'm saying, if you know what I'm saying. Sorry, that was not very eco-jargon. Uh, I take your word for it. I, you ran <laughs> past my understanding. <laughs> and we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is and it's less disclosureable it takes less time to do if it's just the same name so we've been doing this program here uh on this in, on this station 1400 a.m in temple since 1996 we've been doing this a long time and we haven't been paid for it ever uh we also <laughs> have not ever paid for it so we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. 
So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.